0: What is population health?
1: Why do some people become sick while others don't?
2: How do we study and what can we do to eliminate
3: health inequities?
1: Sick Individuals, Sick Populations, the new podcast series from the Interdisciplinary Association of Population Health Science covers these topics and much more.
0: Join us. Arisha Martinez Cardoso from the University of Chicago.
1: Michael Esposito
4: from the University of Michigan.
1: I'm Daryl Hudson at Washington University in St. Louis.
0: Twice a month, as we discuss cutting-edge population health research with scholars working across disciplinary boundaries. Hey, everyone. In today's episode of Sick Individuals, Sick Populations podcast, we're joined by a panel of researchers from the virtual IAPHS annual meeting. This time, we'll be talking about place typologies in population health. I'm your host, Aresha Martinez-Cardoso, from the Department of Public Health Sciences at the University of Chicago. I'm joined by Lorna Thorpe from the Division of Epidemiology at NYU Grossman School of Medicine, who organized this panel, and Dante Chini, I hope I'm saying that right, who holds many hats, including a journalist at the Wall Street Journal and research professor at George Washington University. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Hi, Aresha. Great to be here. It's great to be here.
0: Okay, so why don't I hand it off to both of you, Lorna and Dante. You guys are both playing uh, co- uh, co-hosts and guest podcast hosts for us today. Uh, get us started and tell us who we have on the podcast today.
1: Hi, uh, I'm Dante Chinning.
3: And I am Lorna Thorpe.
1: And uh, we're going to have a little conversation here today about typologies and the use of typologies. And I think the, the, the people we're going to have on here today for this discussion will give an indication I think of how widely used they have become uh, and uh, the many different kind of approaches to to, to using typologies in academic work um, but, but to, to begin we're going we have a lot of people that are going to take us in different directions but to, to I'm happy to be here today with Lorna because uh, she does a lot of work with typology project out of NYU and um, let's talk a little bit first of all about why we're talking about typologies, and, and from my perspective as a journalist, and i'm I'm a different from a lot of the folks on this uh, uh, call here, this this group, even at this conference, uh, that typologies, for me, are about making sense of the world in, in a way that 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 helps me explain it to other people. And I think they are particularly useful today and necessary even today, and that we're we are really awash in data and data points and bits of information. And typologies are a way, I think, that let us kind of bring everything together in some way that lets us organize in our head. I think we create organizational systems in our head all the time without thinking about it. What typologies let us do is kind of formalize it, uh, put some rigor behind it, and, and say something in academia and, I think, in journalism that is, that is useful to people.
3: That's right. And, and, you know, who uses typologies? I think they're most widely used by researchers and by policy staff. Quite frankly, uh, uh, and in the context of this podcast, we're talking mostly about place typologies, where uh, researchers and uh, government agencies use typologies to identify places that are similar to each other out of a total set of many places, and and they use different inputs of data uh, to do so. And out of that project, you know, effort comes. Uh, the ability to identify groups that are relatively homogeneous to each other, and to use that for a couple of different purposes. One purpose might be to say why are some communities faring differently than others uh, and, and to study it uh, Another reason might be to to really tailor policies or interventions to the specific circumstances of places and a nice thing about typologies is that they don't require places to be geographically contiguous.
1: Right. I think it's a really good point. And, and I think that if you go out and the reason I fell into this, I mean, as, as a journalist is if you go out and see the world, uh you quickly understand that there are the, you know these there are these warring ideas in people's heads about like every place is unique and every person is unique and these are all true. But the thing is when you get out there and you see enough places you 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 make these connections in your head and you see these similarities and you realize I think as a journalist you realize that it's interesting because we're talking about policy here and, and academia, you realize as a journalist when you get out there it's like wow, like the approach that I've seen they used in in City X or community X is never going to work in this place. This place is fundamentally different, but there's this place that I went to that's hundreds of miles away that would seem to have not very much in common with this community at all, at least looking at a map, and and they share some commonalities. They share some things, and the typology, I think, lets you stitch that stuff together and talk about common ways to help different places that seem, that, that seem at least from 30,000 feet to look very different.
3: That's right. And one of the reasons I'm excited about the podcast today is we brought researchers from uh, three different projects that have used different methods for typologies and uh have engaged with the stakeholders and and uh communities that for which they're doing their typologies and and in many instances uh the communities can see themselves in that typology or they can clearly not you know and that's a I think an interesting moment uh, and I'm really excited to to hear more about how the researchers on today's podcast have dealt with that.
1: Um, absolutely. I think one thing we want to touch on before we go, and we have really fascinating people to talk to today, but one reason we want one thing we want to talk to about before we jump in hold, hold with both feet is. Uh, why why are typologies are typologies becoming more common now? Why are typologies becoming more common now in terms of trying to understand the country uh, or, or you' see here beyond the country across country lines and And I think the reason is um, we have so much more ability now to see the world outside of where we are, particularly online, and we have ways to gather information and gather data and I think that requires when we look at it a, a, a different way of processing things. we can see the world more deeply. If, in, all, in all kind of its component parts, if we're really looking for that and we need some way to draw it together. And and again, I think the people we're going to have on today are are really excellent ways, excellent voices to kind of explore why we do this and how we do
3: this. Right. And I, I agree with you. We are seeing uh, the use of typologies more frequently. I think there's probably a number of different reasons why that's the case. I mean, one, you mentioned it earlier, the, the abundance of data. Uh, we have now, uh more a growth in availability of more diverse data uh, uh that are granular to small areas um and across a number of different disciplines whether it's you know economics demography health education etc we have uh, publicly available satellite data electronic health records so there's you know the the data inputs are there but methodologically too people can do this now at their desktop they've got the computational power uh, they've got the geospatial tools to be able to do it and statistical packages that allow people to do different types of clustering analyses that, that really aid this type of work. But there's one other reason I was thinking about that makes, uh, typology so timely. And that's because I think in this country and in other parts of the world, we're really seeing a divergence of social and economic opportunity and health and life expectancy, you know, uh, that, that varies by space and, and place and uh, it's patterned. And we're trying, you know, to to answer some really important questions now.
1: That's just, that's a hugely important point. I mean, uh, I spend a lot of my time and the work that I do looking at the United States, but it, it doesn't, you don't have to pick your head up very hard and very high and look around the country, look around the world and see some of the same things we're seeing in this country happening in other places and other, you know, so-called first world countries. The same patterns that we're seeing develop here Developing in other places. And, and you're right. And, and, and that combination of the data, the computational power and, and the need really is what we're talking about, I guess. Uh, those three things coming together and really making typology more, more prevalent and, and more important.
3: Right. So I, I'd love to, to tell you who we're going to talk to uh, on this p- podcast. Uh, you and I could talk all day, but I think yes. we've got some exciting people. <laughs> and so um, maybe I'll start with introdu- in, introducing each of them. Um, We have brought Ari Pincus in. Uh, She is the manager of the American Communities Project, and that is a project based out of George Washington University's School of Media and Public Affairs. You know it well, Dante, because you were the founder of it. Uh, Um, It it has been a a really innovative and creative uh, social science and journalism efforts to really break break out uh, typologies of communities across America. So we're really excited to have Ari. And I think she also comes with a background as a news editor for the Christian Science Monitor, which, which means she's really seen a lot of America. We also have Justin Feldman. And Justin Feldman is a uh, tremendous social epidemiologist, and he is currently health and human rights fellow at the Francois Xavier Bagnoud Center for Health and Human Rights at Harvard University. And for the last several years, three years or so, uh, he has been a collaborator with the city health dashboard. And that's a project that I know quite well because I've been uh, a co principal investigator of that project. And so Justin, uh, brings, uh, some, uh, uh, description of how we have built in typologies using the city health dashboard. And that is a project led by the NYU Grossman School of Medicine, uh, that has a goal of bringing data to city leaders and the public um, around health and health equity for for more than 750 cities. Then we have the dynamic duo of uh, Olga Lucia Sarmiento and Usama Belal. Uh, Dr. Sarmiento is professor in the Department of Population Health at Universidad de los Andes School of Medicine in Bogotá, Colombia. She's also a site principal investigator of the Sal Urbao Project. Salur is a Salud Urbana in America Latina, or Urban Health in Latin America, that studies how urban environments and policies impact the health of city residents across Latin America. Dr. Bialal is also associated with the Salur project, and he is assistant professor at Drexel Dornslife School of Public Health, hails originally from Spain, and he is a member of the Urban Health Collaborative. So a great lineup. Dante, and I'm going to pass it to you to take it away.
1: Yeah, and if the, those introductions show why Lorna did this, the pronunciation was excellent. Uh, I, can't, I can't do that as well as she can. Uh, so I want to start off with, um, for, to kick off this discussion with uh, my colleague, actually, Ari Pincus, who runs the American Communities Project. And it's great. Ari knows this very well, because I, uh, when Ari was an editor at the Christian Science Monitor, uh, she was my editor. Uh, when I did the precursor to what would become the American Community, uh, community <laughs> American Communities Project, so Ari, wh- why don't we why don't we kick it off? I mean, let's talk about what is the ACP about. Like, what are the motivations for it? What, what do we what do we think we're what do we think we're doing
5: with it?
2: Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Ari Pinkus, and I'm with the ACP. And we um, at the ACP are journalists um, primarily, and we really thrive on stories and patterns and. Um, I think in our reporting, what we were noticing is that communities that are far apart could be very similar in culture and economics and other factors, while communities that could be, you know, really uh, close together were so different. And so we kind of wanted a way to quantify what we were seeing and help us see also beyond America's um, divisions, red versus blue and urban versus rural. So we um, worked with a Stanford statistician professor to help us classify all of the 20, 3100 plus counties in America into one of 15 different kinds of communities. And we use 36 different variables, including demographics, economics, religion, military service members, and more. And so we have these 15 different kinds of communities. They include big cities. So these are the major industrial um, metropolitan cities, Philadelphia, Boston. Uh, We've got college towns, military posts. We've got communities of color. They include the African-American South, Hispanic centers, Native American lands. We have suburbs divided into three different categories uh, depending on the density and demographics, exurbs, middle suburbs, urban suburbs. We have aging farmlands, which are mostly white agricultural areas in the Great Plains. that have been losing population in rural Middle America. It's predominantly white and has a mixed small town and rural terrain. <laughs> um, and then two communities stand out by the religious affiliations, evangelical hubs and the LDS enclaves. Evangelical hubs are based in the South, and um, LDS enclaves are members of the Mormon Church, and they're in Utah, Idaho, and Wyoming. And uh, breaking the country down this way really provides a frame to tell more nuanced stories and helps us to smell myths about people and places and gives communities an opportunity to learn from one another's leaders and practices and policies and cultures.
1: And, and I mean, and our, the, the ACP's approach is, is unique, I think, among the, the folks here because as uh, we don't have as many degrees. Between us, we had to go get somebody with a degree to help us build the typology we built. Uh, so it really did arise out of storytelling, right? It arise out of a, a need for better storytelling. We felt that was the and the data ultimately for us, I think, uh, created the typology. The typology helps us see the country better and helps us tell the stories better. I mean, what do you, and and look. You are so instrumental to that, uh, at what, you, what you do to the site every day in terms of bringing those voices in. We go out and visit places, but as we've gone out and visit them, visited them, we've talked to people and we've got different ways of bringing the stories in now.
2: Right. Um, so when we did our report on rural America last year, we went to six different kinds of communities that re- represented rural America and, um, we've stayed in touch with the folks, uh, and it's been really interesting to keep in touch with them during the COVID-19 crisis, because you really see the different vantage points and how the communities are wrestling with these issues. Um, I was recently uh, in conversation with a pastor in rural Arkansas, r- working class country community, and they've really completely changed the way that they're doing their uh, ministry. And he can no longer go to a um, you know nursing home or hospital there. Um, He's kind of the de facto chaplain because I don't have a chaplain, but he's now doing his calls over FaceTime and um, folks are spread apart uh, in the congregation. They finally went back to church just a couple of months ago and he's been uh, assisting with daily needs. You know, people have um, a lot of food insecurity there and, um, you know, have trouble paying the rent. And so he's he's helping in that in that area um and we see other stories of you know a restaurateur in uh, rural middle america in uh, morton county north dakota just outside of bismarck and his restaurant has been struggling uh, since the pandemic hit and uh, while the pay tech protection uh, program was helpful uh, what was most helpful was the unemployment benefits that uh, he and his staff received um so, it's been really interesting to stay in touch with folks over these past few months and just see how they're handling the challenges in their respective communities.
1: Yeah, and I think, particularly when you talk about rural America, there's been a lot of talk in COVID. I think a lot of the focus has been on urban places. And I think the unique perspective that we have with the American Communities Project is the ability not only to look at rural America, but like you say, different kinds of rural America. And it does seem like when you talk about Fulton County, Arkansas, which is this working class country community, just fairly remote the impacts have not been as stark there in terms of like what's happening to even to the place economically as they are in uh up in north dakota which is again a rural community but not quite as remote as much right around the corner and it's it's representative of that kind of place right this this uh rural middle america community that's small town america but not really as remote and they the, the economic impacts there are are stark and i mean So as we go forward, that's something we're going to look at more and more through the frame of the typology, the way unemployment is hitting these places, business closures, even things like um, uh, evictions and and housing foreclosures.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think uh, evictions and housing foreclosures are going to be really important to look at in the coming months. Um, we're really trying to reach a pretty diverse audience from you know journalists to foundations to nonprofit leaders to community leaders. And we've seen people kind of integrate our work into their work, which has been kind of interesting. Um, you know, especially graduate students are fascinated by the kind of work that we do and journalists too, um, especially local newspapers that have lost a lot of staff and copy, they've kind of um, taken some of our pieces and run with them, which has been really exciting to see.
1: Yeah, that has been great. It's been really great. Um, uh, that's, I think it's terrific. I think we should just in the, uh, we should move onward here. Yes. Um, Lorna, why don't you lead us on to our next, uh, our next victim here.
3: <laughs> Serving up, I think uh, let's pivot to the city health dashboard, which, you know, we just talked about all of America. Um, uh being typed into communities now we're zooming in on cities which you know are, are only a geographic proportion of our a smaller proportion of our our country but you know population wise uh really covers more than eighty percent of our population uh so i uh, i I think uh having you justin join us and tell us a little bit about the city health dashboard and the typology developed
6: Sure. So I will start with the background on the City Health Dashboard. Um, City Health Dashboard came out of recognizing a need for city-level data on health and the social and economic determinants of health. And in the United States, we have these units that are very easy to work with called counties. There's something like 1,400 of them, and they cover the entire country. And most of our health data in particular that we have at the, the smallest unit we have it at is the county. Um and then when you get to cities which cover less of the country, often it is a struggle to get city level health data. And my colleagues and I, including Lorna, have looked at what happens when you try to use county level data to characterize cities. Uh, and quite often, there are important differences. Uh, often, I mean it, it really depends on the particular city. But I think if I remember correctly, the overall pattern is that cities tend to have lower income populations and greater uh, concentrations of people of color than their surrounding counties. So by using county data, you often understate issues of social inequality. And deprivation. Uh, so that's, that's a key feature of this website, which, uh, draws on a lot of U.S. Census data, which is a very rich source of all sorts of economic and social data at various geographies, including cities. Uh, but then we have some special data, uh, that we've sort of cobbled together. It wasn't really me. Uh, it was our city health dashboard staff, uh, some of the most impressive of which is county level, sorry, city level mortality data, which has required going year after year back to Bethesda, Maryland at the National Center for Health Statistics and getting these non-standard geographic breakdowns of mortality data. Uh, and so that, that's all available and that's on the 500 largest cities in the United States. Uh, but then, we were approached by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to create a typology on small and medium-sized cities, which doesn't completely overlap with the 500 cities that were originally on the website. Uh, the population range we defined small and medium-sized cities as was between 50,000 and 500,000 people, and it was a bit over 700 cities in the U.S., uh, and our task was with a focus. So our, our focus was a bit different than the American Communities Project, which is about storytelling and journalism and, and all sorts of other purposes. We were more narrowly focused on this question of uh concerning health and well-being of cities and trying to bring cities together that are similar to one another in terms of the challenges they may face and the opportunities they may have, um, but perhaps they have different ranges of health outcomes, perhaps they have different practices and policies, and if they could come together with cities that were similar to them in terms of demographics, regional economy, the size of the city and the size of the metro area, they could identify similar cities and share strategies for dealing with challenges that may be common to them. Um, And
3: Yeah, let me ask you a question because I think we're going to get into some of the methods later. So that's for anyone who's uh, wonky and nerdy and wants to talk about uh, different uh, typology methods, stay tuned. But another thing that you did as part of developing this typology, Justin, was to work iteratively with cities. Um, And can you describe how you did that?
6: Yeah, and without getting too much into methods, I think an important, at least in my view, one feature of creating typologies, which ultimately we're using some kind of statistical methods to create typologies, but it's not, there's no definitive answer to which cities will be in which clusters and how many cities. <laughs> so we we really rely on um, how meaningful these clusters are or these different groups are. Uh, and that takes expertise and uh, feedback from the people who will ultimately be using this. So we, we actually had two different sets of expert panels, one being uh, people more in the... Nonprofit and academic world who work on issues relating to the urban U.S. Uh, and another, we had, uh, mayors and other city level officials and community organization representatives from five cities that were in these, uh, in this list of small and medium sized cities. So as a, we had extensive discussions with all of these partners before we even started. And then it was later an iterative process where we, we would, we would come up with some typology draft. They would tell us how terrible it was and <laughs> go back and, uh, incorporate their feedback.
3: But it was also, you know, my recollection, I wasn't in all of these meetings. You really led this, Justin, but the, my recollection is sometimes it would be. Most people would see themselves fine in it, but there'd be like one group that just sort of says, "Whoa, I, you know, me, our our city, that's it." And it it, it produced a nugget.
6: Mm-hmm. Uh, that oh, yeah. Fail for sure. Um, I in some cases cities cities wanted to define themselves in in ways that were not necessarily aligned with our our vision. So maybe I, I can think of one city in particular that was the capital of its state. And they thought perhaps they should be grouped with other capital cities, uh, which we ultimately decided not to do because right. our, our view that was a policy challenge. One of the challenges they faced was having a lot of nonprofit and government facilities that were not paying property taxes and depleting the tax base. Uh And for us, that was more of a policy question. So it would be good to and something quite modifiable, uh perhaps hard to modify. Um and, and in another case, we had a city in Southern California that um re- was kind of an outlier. It was kind of didn't fit into any of our categories in, in a couple iterations. And they, they told us that that was really eye opening. It was being grouped with cities that were pretty <laughs> demographically different um, that were also in the Midwest. There There was some geographic patterning. There was some geographic differences. It just didn't didn't make sense in this one particular case. So it was very helpful to get that feedback. Uh, from Salinas, California, that they didn't quite fit in the category we had placed them in. And we went back to the drawing board on that one.
1: I I was going to say just one thing I've noticed, Justin, from the work that we do too, is that the one thing you find when you deal with people and talk to people from the community themselves is nobody understands the community as well as the people that live there because they have this really close-up view of everything. But then also nobody misunderstands it sometimes so easily because you're coming at it, with all the data and seeing everything from 30,000 feet. And for them, sometimes it's, it can be eye-opening when you present them with a typology like that.
6: Yeah, I th- I think that's true. And I think there's also, it's, it's interesting, I think, and, and this has happened in, in work I've done in the past in small cities and towns in Massachusetts too, where sometimes they like to think they're very unique and don't want to be physical. <laughs> and that came up in, uh, we had, in almost every version of creating this typology, every draft we went through, uh, co- uh, college towns ended up together. So cities with large college-age populations, often because there was a large university. Yep. And our one college town that was part of our uh, advisory board, uh, advisory committee, uh, they wanted to... Th- they. They wanted to highlight that they were not just the university population, they had other issues, perhaps they weren't like all these other college towns. But, of course, it turns out that you often do have these sharp uh, town and gown divides in, in all these different, uh, different towns with large college populations.
3: Yeah, you know, my last question for you, Justin, is: Could you just summarize a little bit about, you know, what did you find? What, were, how many typologies, and uh, you know, sort of just in a couple of examples?
6: Yeah. So we, in the end, came up with ten different categories, and I won't say all of them, nor can I, nor have I memorized all of them, um, but just a few examples. One was college towns, which which grouped out um, on their own. Um, another was, um, it's been, it's been a little while. Um, <laughs> uh, we had some communities that were wealthier in small cities and large metro areas, for instance. A lot of the groupings were just really illustrative of fairly strong economic and, and racial divides in, uh, city level patterning. Right. Right.
3: And by the way, I will say to podcast listeners that we will make, make available, uh, as sort of corollary material, uh, links to all of these terrific websites and dashboards and, 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 and papers. Yeah.
1: If you love this stuff, you can get lost in it. Uh, once you start clicking around a typology, it's, it's a lot of fun, particularly when there are maps involved. Uh, and, and on that and, and moving onward, I guess from there, the, the, Uh, Osama and Olga are really interesting because they've done something that that we didn't do with the American Communities Project and and you didn't do with the the City Hill Dashboard either, which is they went across country lines and went across borders to find commonalities. So, so, uh, uh, Olga, Osama, you guys talk a little bit about the typology you built and why you built it, what you found, that kind of thing.
5: So, I'm going to go ahead and start. Is that okay, Osama? (laughs) Okay so um yeah so we're coming now from another region Latin America but as you said, there are also commonalities, and the nice things of typologies is to find benchmarks. Those are, those are really unique things. But specifically for our project, which is saludable, we want to know where those are uh, features, those uh, factors from the environment that could be associated with different health outcomes, health outcomes such as obesity or non-communicable diseases, mortality. So for us, it was very very important to understand the environment but we had a lot of cities so the first thing we had to do was to define a city defining a city is a very complex task so for that we use um some satellite date some expertise and that was the first task and then within our cities uh, for this case we have 370 cities uh, which are um, this uh, administrative and also based on f- the footprint of those cities, we define uh, these actually geographic units. So we basically initially, we wanted to know a little bit of the urban landscape. So for that, we use satellite data for all those cities to have comparable data because um I think, Justin, you were saying that it's very difficult to find data within different units. So imagine in the developing world where we had less uh, data compared to what you have, for instance, in the U.S. So the first thing was to have these satellite data for the urban landscape. And the second thing we were very interested in was the street patterns, the design of our streets. So for that, what uh, we use was... um Data uh, from the street design from each of our, of our, um, different units, uh, basically using street maps. So for that, we have now open street maps data and then we have the satellite data. So now we needed to build our profiles or our typologies. So, um, basically what we did was to find uh, typologies for the urban landscape and typologies for the open street maps for our different cities to show that um, There are different typologies that go beyond the large cities, which are the ones that have been mostly studied like um, Sao Paulo or Mexico City or Bogota. Then we also show with this typology, similar to what Justin was saying that many of our middle sized cities also have different typologies that also differ from the typologies that we have seen in high income countries and developed countries. So I don't know, Usama, if you want to complement a little bit more of what we did in Salerbal that you deal with all this data.
4: Yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's fascinating working across country lines, right? Because, you know, when one tries to do typologies of counties or typologies of cities in the U.S., you have a very clear definition that is set out by the census. You have your codes, everything. Everything is a political unit, which also makes it uh in a way, it's it's easier, but in a way, it's also misleading, right? Because cities go below, um, cities go below those political units. In our case, we had this interest of, of describing, describing the whole thing of a city, right? If one thinks of uh, Mexico City, where the what will be the equivalent of the city in the U.S. is something that has eight or nine million people, but really, what the people experience of Mexico City is 21 or 22 million, and we will be missing that. So we had to do that process first. And we had to do that process through eleven countries, which which all of them have their own definition of a county, their own definition of a city, et cetera, et cetera. and that and that was something that was really tricky, but that at the end gave us this comparable um, comparable definition of cities across eleven across eleven countries. And that was key because without that, there is no way to do typologies of something unless you have a clear sense of what the something is. And then, you know, the second thing as 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 Olga Lucia was saying is getting that comparable data. Because otherwise, if we don't have comparable data and we do typologies on non comparable data, we may end up clustering data. Sources instead of clustering underlying constructs, and that that was very very important. And actually, you know, as we were looking at results, one of the things that I was really happy about is seeing that we really don't have this kind of clustering between countries. It's, it, the clusters go across countries, which is good because it means that the data is really comparable there. It means that that they com- we are capturing all of those uh, commonalities.
1: Yeah, and in some ways, something that's bigger than politics, right? What you're really capturing with that is an economic or 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 a cultural uh, phenomenon that extends beyond political boundaries.
4: Yep, and they, and it, in a way, it also captures history, especially you know with uh, urban settlements. They there is a big there is a big difference in when they were settled, right? And you know there is there is people that study this in a more systematic way. But if we think of Latin American cities, uh, settled when they were settled, and then they grew when they grew, in the conditions that they have, with at this moment lower car ownership, things like that. While now motorization rates are skyrocketing there, that's very different than cities in the U.S., where uh, a lot of the a lot of the growth happened uh, with that grow in car ownership, with that growing in motorization, in the, the new highways, et cetera, et cetera. So that I think makes that's what Allah was saying. It's it's the the comparison with other with other countries that grew in different conditions is it's very interesting.
3: You know, it, when we talk about typologies, we've stressed more than once that we're looking for similarities and commonalities, uh homogeneity uh that is not necessarily bound by contiguous uh, communities, but your group had also a, another motivation and that was to show the differences and could, could you talk about that a little bit?
5: Yes, yeah, so for us it was also to um, underscore the importance that Latin America region is very heterogeneous. Sometimes people talk about these are the patterns of the urban landscape or the street design of the Latin American region and as we said. We included 370 cities, 11 countries, and with different histories and different, uh, patterns of, um, urban development. So for us, it was very important right. to show the different typologies, the different profiles, uh, that also are related with that heterogeneity that we see in the region. So, um, Understanding that heterogeneity that we live in that, also understanding the chaos in which we live, and it's something that many of us have learned how to embrace, was uh, important to really um, have uh, these uh, different uh, typologies. And I just wanted to um, bring something that was related to also what Justin was saying and some of the questions that you were asking, Lerna, and it was the importance of having this multidisciplinary group when we built these typologies. So it was really interesting for me to hear that, uh, like for instance, Justin uh, have a group of uh, mayors and community members. For us was also important to bring uh, people expert on history, Latin American history, that could help us understand the different patterns that we are seeing uh, in terms of the density of the streets, in terms of the patterns of the design of the streets. So I think that that was also very important for, for our project because typologists cannot only bring could be bring, could be brought by, by the statistics or the methods. They have to get all this input from the experts. Uh, for, in their case, urban planners, transport, health, and also um, people expert on history.
4: I, I want to add one thing there on that last point, which is uh, very important. That it's it's very. I mean, it, it is possible to do typologies not knowing anything about the topic. Of course, it's possible to input them in software and then output something, but to create meaningful ones without knowledge of the topic, it's 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 a futile task, and it's it's something we need to be uh, very aware of. That the the interpretation of these typologies is the most important thing of the, of the whole process. It's understanding what they mean even naming them, giving them a name that that we can use, that kind of thing is really, really important. And the statistical software can never tell you the name of a typology or the meaning of it.
3: I'm so glad you brought that up, Usama. I, I mean, I remember during the process of developing the typologies at the dashboard, we were talking to economists, we were talking to people across disciplines who helped us really refine like, okay, the inputs, are they meaningful? uh and then the naming was probably just as long uh the process of really coming up with names that were salient uh that effort took just as long as the process of developing the typologies i think in some ways uh and, and had a you know there's a tremendous amount of back and forth so um which you know maybe now dante is a good time for us to switch to so we develop you know you develop the typologies you get tremendous amount of expert uh input uh and I wonder if we could move to questions about you know uh strategies for for, for sharing the information and getting more feedback um and and maybe perhaps back to Ari for that.
2: Uh I look at it as a um a daily challenge to get the word out when the news is just coming so fast and furiously. Uh, But social media is invaluable. Um, Having an updated Twitter and uh, Facebook page, also having a newsletter um, goes out to uh, everybody we've met on our travels, as well as um, folks in Washington and at the universities. Um, They all kind of read it and they sometimes do give feedback. Uh, We receive emails from folks and um, it's nice when people cross post uh, with our work from local news outlets um, or feature some of our interactive graphics in local newspapers. Uh, The CDC has expressed interest in working with us. Um, As I said before, a lot of graduate students have reached out to us and They're interested in using the typology in their work. They're also interested in contributing to our website. Um, Community leaders give feedback, too, about things that they've seen on our site, and they're interested in writing for us, uh, which is great. Uh, So we have a lot of different channels. We work with a lot of nonprofit groups uh, on story ideas and uh, on data uh, collection and analysis. And
1: I would say, just to add it to that, because it's a really good point, how do we get Get reaching policymakers is not an easy thing, right? You can build this wonderful thing, which we think we have a really great tool, and how do you get the word out? And the sometimes the words we the word we've gotten back, the Census, for instance, wanted one of the typology we had because they wanted to figure out how to get better response rates from different types of place. The only reason that came about is the Washington Post wrote about something that we did, uh, and that got the attention of somebody at Census, and then they reached out to us and we it it's helped us build a really good relationship with those folks over at Census too, which when you build a typology in the United States, it's not a bad thing
2: to have.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. And Olga, Sam, I know you you are uh, still still in the process of finalizing your typology. Um, can you talk a little bit about the stakeholders that you're engaging in and how?
5: Yeah, for, um, stakeholders, we have, um, especially, um, urban planners, experts on transport. I have also experts on, um, health from their local secretariats. And as I said, um, some, uh, colleagues, um, who are, uh, geographers and experts on history. It's actually a challenge because we're talking about different countries and each country wants to define themselves, their cities and themselves into, into different uh, typologies. So we started since I was, I'm was i in Colombia, I started with our local um, stakeholders to define, for instance, the name. So for instance, I'll give you an example, um, street design patterns. You have a street density, intersections, uh, many urban planners understand that very well. And uh, when I talk with my colleagues in the US, they said this could be walkability. But when I try to understand the walkability concept in the two regions, they are different. And when I talk with my health experts, they don't necessarily understand that. So then talking with also creative people from design, they said, well, this looks like a spider web, this profile, because the streets are very connected, the streets are dense, and you have uh, less time from point to point. So we came up for a name for one of our profiles as the spider web and that was something that was understood by the different uh communities so i think uh what you were asking that talking with uh, about stakeholders it really means that um that we need to talk to with all the different disciplines to come up with something that may not be the technical term but could make sense for the different stakeholders
4: in, in in our case, I think it's also interesting that since this is an international project with uh, fifteen ins- institutions, the rest of the researchers are also stakeholders because they are going to be users of these of this profile. Because all of these profiles are linked to other to other sorts of health data uh, and are there uh, to be used to help people in in categorizing and conceptualizing cities. So. I think the process of explaining this to other researchers has also been very, very in- interesting, because it's, it's first of all, you need to understand the complexity of the measures associated with it, and then the fact that there are the landscape ones and the street design ones, etc. So it's, uh, that explanation, I think, is also a, a tricky one.
3: And that's that's, you know, why I guess these methods, papers behind the typologies is so useful. You can always refer back to that. And I know all of you are are have and are working on, on some of those. Um, you know, and I think for the dashboard, Justin, it was really great to see that you were able to get the the typologies uh into the dashboard in a way so that if you're a city, if you're Austin, Texas and you want to compare yourself to sit other cities. You can choose this is my understanding t- tell me if i'm i'm right you can you can choose to compare yourself to other cities of the similar population size or a similar racial ethnic background, or you know to other cities in my typology you know and, and it shows the typology you can see how the cities sort of fall across life expectancy or our different health outcomes and uh that I- I is really exciting that I think that was just uh new in the last. One or two months, is that right?
6: Yep. Uh, so we not only have a report you can read on the website, but a, we had an, a prior city comparison tool. Um, and this is just one more option of comparing your cities to others in the same, same group in this newer typology we created.
1: And that, that actually, so moving on from there, I mean, is this a time to go into the nitty gritty of the data, the methods, how we actually build these things, which is, I think there are a couple of people on this, uh, podcast that are better at having this discussion than I am, uh, and maybe that Lorna is either uh, also. And that's, uh, Justin and Osama, um, you know, how do you go about building one of these things? How do you, how do you pick what goes into your typology? How do you, how do you even start to do this thing that, that, uh, that we're talking about here?
4: I, I remember uh, in in our case, in our case, I think you know the discussions started some time ago. But I remember a very specific moment in, in one of our meetings when we were deciding what goes into the typologies, what doesn't go, and at, at that point, I was uh, about to to publish one of my dissertation papers. That had dealt with uh, uh, creating typologies of neighborhoods, and one of the advices that I had received at that point is, if you put eighty variables into your typologies, you are going to get something, but you won't be able to to really explain it to anyone, uh, because uh, you you will be able to continue adding typologies, etc. You will find differences, etc., but you won't be able to to do that. So I I, I think the the key thing there is understanding what are the key constructs, the key variables that you are trying to um, that are important for the construct that you are trying to to measure and to characterize, and, and also that are relatively straightforward to explain to people. So if we get too complicated, then the typologies are already complicated in in enough. so uh, having relatively simple variables may may also help there. So start small. And then continue adding uh, complexity there with the goal of being able to explain these typologies at the at the end
1: yeah, and that ex- that explanation points really important too. I remember we, we talked before we all got together through this podcast, and there was one point where Usama and Olga were talking, and Olga said something to the to the to the effect of well that just you can't, there was an original version of the typology, and she says, "Oh no, 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 this isn't going to work. this isn't going to make any sense on the ground to reality, and the ability of how do you translate this thing that you're building, making sure the thing you're building is translatable to people who don't have the big numbers brains that uh, some people have in this call.
6: And I'll just sort of build on one of the first things Usama had just said. Um, I think it's very tempting when you're dealing with any kind of statistical method to think that the statistical tool is going to do the work for you. Um and in research in general, I would caution against that, but especially for creating typologies. Because if you're in a typical study we do in public health, for instance, we're trying to estimate a very specific quantity, say the effect on some health outcome that taking a pill would cause. Uh, it's very clear. The The goal in that case is very clear. Um, when it comes to creating a typology, you really have to be more deliberate everything from which variables go into it which method are you going to use uh, how many different categories do you want these are often all pre-specified by you and it can seem pretty arbitrary so for for me a key aspect not just uh, being able to communicate it is important but also having a clear theoretical framework that you're building from to decide which variables would go into it and why, uh, how many different categories do you want and why. And some of that's your audience, some of that's your theory, some of that's statistical properties of whatever method you're using.
3: That's so helpful to hear. And I, I almost feel as if we should to capture that and put it at the beginning, middle, and end of, of this podcast. But um, let me ask you, you know, at the end of the day, you need to decide on the statistical approach. And um, perhaps, you, you know, there is some deliberation and important decisions there. And I wonder if, if Justin and Osama, we can conti- continue to lean on you and just uh, talk through how you decided whether to use, you know, pay means, clustering, latent class analysis, et cetera, et cetera, uh, and what were some considerations? Justin I might always start with you,
6: okay, so there yeah there's there's several different ways to place cities or geographic units in categories. Um, you could just do it all yourself without any kind of statistics, but that that gets complicated, although I think for a small number of cities it's probably valid if what you're trying to achieve is some kind of acceptance from the end user and some kind of meaningfulness uh it could be worth looking into for certain smaller problems uh and then generally the, the techniques i know of i think k-mean or k-median uh cluster analysis is one sort of set then there's another sort of set often referred to as latent class analysis latent profile analysis depending on what kinds of variables you're putting in. And at least in some statistical uh, programs, it's related to structural equation modeling. It is in Stata, which is what we ended up using. Uh, And then what I really wanted to use, but it often doesn't work, is there's a tool called exact matching or coarsened exact matching, which usually has a pretty different purpose. But basically you're trying to match, in our case, cities, to other cities that share the exact same characteristics. So say between 10 and 20 percent poverty in a particular city, you're going to match. That's going to match between all cities and then the city size is going to match between all cities within a certain range. Uh, you often run into the problem of the clusters being much too small and many cities only being alone in their own cluster, which is not not great. So that basically, in a practical sense, we use k-mean or k-median analysis and latent, latent profile, latent class analysis. And we ended up using latent profile analysis. Um, not, there was no very clear advantage over k-mean's cluster analysis. I liked how it allowed us to see sort of the probability that any one city fit in any one particular cluster and that helped us kind of diagnose these issues of outliers of cities that don't necessarily clearly belong to any one category.
4: In in our case, we went with a very similar uh, with a very similar approach uh, by using uh, finite mixture finite mixture modeling, which I believe is the overall name for all of these methods that uh, Justin it. Uh, Just talk about latent class analysis and latent profile and analysis and part of the reasoning in our case was that we wanted to Accommodate several types of variables. Uh, We wanted to have a a Parametric model which means that if we were to get more cities, we will input them into into the model because we are assuming that these city characteristics the, the typologies come from a From a distribution in the population wanted to be able to 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 assess how well every city was classified, et cetera. All of these kind of, all of these kind of advantages. Now, once, once you go into that, now, as with any, um, as with any method that is based, um, that is based on, on, a, on parametric modeling, one of the advantages on one side, but disadvantages, I believe in this case, is that if you have more data, uh, you will be able to do more things, right? Because you have increased power. Now, uh, a way of having more data here is definitely to to have more variables, like adding more information. Now, if we are if we want to add more and more variables, we will be able to detect more and more typologies, because there are more things to look for differences or commonalities around. Right. So, um, that's that's one of the things that we're causing everyone trying to do this, which is try to be relatively restrictive in the number of variables that that you include. And now, once you more or less have a set of variables to come up with the important ones, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. One important aspect is how many typologies do we end up with right? Do we end up with four with five, etc Now this depends on the method depends on many things in our case we first we knew what kind of things we were looking for, so we knew uh, a few patterns from from theory um. Then uh, we also took into consideration that the typologies that we obtained were meaningfully different from, from, from each other and that they were interpretable, that we were able to look at them and see, oh, there is this spider web thing. There's these other ones that are more like a labyrinth. You will go in and then have to, in order to come out of. Of the street, there are barely any intersections, that, that kind of thing. So that's one very important thing. You can also, of course, as it is a parametric model, be guided by fit statistics. How well is our model fit in the, fit in the data? And, and last, there is another criteria, which is how well is, how well are all of the cities classified? It has very different names. Entropy is one of the names that you see commonly used in many of the statistical software. That is essentially telling us, in general, cities here with this number of typologies and this variable, we classify them quite well, or everything is quite fussy and we don't really know where to place every city. So playing with those, I would say, four criteria, fit and entropy on one side, and on the other side, interpretability, and I will say adherence to your your theory. I think striking a balance between those is key to determining that number of typologies. Um, Wow.
1: That is an in-depth conversation.
4: Uh, it's the nerdy part of (laughs) this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The the nerdy parts, the important part. (laughs) Um, so, so as we're, we're getting near the end here, just to, to wrap up, I, I, we've talked a lot about these different, different work that uh, we're all doing work with typologies on this, on this podcast. So uh, we should just run through with everybody on this, on this, in this conversation here and ask, you know where where can people go to see the work and learn more about it uh uh Ari,
2: the a c p uh dot org is our website and you can sign up for our newsletter there as well
4: We
1: love the newsletter uh uh justin
6: so city health dashboard is cityhealthdashboard.com.
1: And dot com and uh and Olga, I'll let you guys figure that one out who wants to speak? Is anything available yet or is it all still in the process of being built?
5: It will be in our Salurval website soon, I hope. <laughs> and I will keep you posted on it.
4: And you can find the Salurval website at lackurbanhealth.org. I believe we'll put some links on the on the on the podcast later, but uh, you can find all of the news about the project in general over there.
1: Uh, very good. Uh, that's excellent. That's a whole bunch of good resources to go to for people who are interested in typologies and learning more about all these wonderful things people are doing. Uh, for now, though, let's say thank you all for, uh, tuning in, for listening in, however you're listening to this podcast. And, uh, thanks to all our guests, uh, Olga, Usama, Justin, Ari, and Lorna, my co-host. Uh, thank you all very much and, uh, have a very nice day. Thanks
3: real pleasure to be with
1: you all thank you thanks
0: thank you gracias